Our scripture this morning is a familiar one, even the children knew it, and you've just heard, heard it. Um, it's from Genesis 3, and I'm going to be reading this from the message in the hopes that we might sort of hear it afresh in a new, uh, a new version. So this is Genesis 3, verses 1 through 19. <clears throat> the serpent was clever, more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman, Do I understand that God told you not to eat from, the tree, from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, Not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It's only the tree in the middle of the garden, God said. Don't eat from it. Don't even touch it or you will die. The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. When the woman saw that the tree looked like good eating and realized that she would, what she would get out of it, she'd know everything, she took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband, and he ate. Immediately, the two of them did see what was going on, saw themselves naked. They sewed fig leaves together as makeshift clothes for themselves. When they heard the sound of God strolling in the garden in the evening breeze, the man and his wife hid in the trees of the garden, hid from God. God called to the man, where are you? He said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. God said, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? The man said, the woman, the woman you gave me as a companion, she gave me fruit from the tree, and yes, I ate it. God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The serpent seduced me, she said, and I ate. God told the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed. Cursed beyond all cattle and wild animals. Cursed to slink on your belly and eat dirt all your life. I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He'll wound her. He'll wound, her, your, he'll wound your heel, and you'll wound his heel. He'll wound your head, and you'll wound his heel. He told the woman, I'll multiply your pains in childbirth. You'll give birth to your babies in pain. You'll want to please your husband, but he'll lord it over you. He told the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from, don't eat from this tree. The very ground is cursed because of you. Getting food from the ground will be pain as painful as having babies is for your wife. You'll be working in pain all your life long. The ground will sprout thorns and weeds. You'll get your food the hard way, planting and tilling and harvesting, sweating in the field from dawn to dusk, dusk until you return to the ground yourself, dead and buried. You started out dirt, you'll end up dirt. This is the gift of God's word. So let's look at this text a little bit. First of all, some people read this text and they hear an, a historical account. Some people believe that Adam and Eve were his characters of history and we have a, a history lesson in this, um, in this story. 
Others believe that this story is, in fact, a metaphor that communicates a spiritual truth, if not a historical truth. Either way, I think it's important for us to hear the message that comes to us in this story and to glean from it what God intends us to, get, to glean from this important message. The fall itself happens right after creation. We've just heard the creation. The creation story is God created the animals and the trees, the water, and it's all good. It's good, it's good, it's good, God says over and over again. And then God creates humankind. In the image of God, he creates us male and female. And we're told God says it's very good. Humankind is very good. And so we've had this wonderful story of creation where God makes this great world and people in God's own image, and it's all very good. And then immediately following that, we have this story of something going terribly wrong. The serpent tells Eve, essentially, don't trust God. God doesn't, doesn't have your best. He's trying to keep something from you is really what's going on, says the serpent. That's really the message here is that God can't be trusted and that you know better, that God is trying to withhold something from you. And so Adam and Eve think, yeah, gosh, that sounds right. And they decide to go ahead and do what God has told them not to do. They disobey. They doubt that God has their best interests at heart. And so they make their own decision to go their own way. And immediately it all unravels. There's shame. There's blame. There's fear. There's more shame. You see that where just a minute ago we had this great creation, all all things were perfect, and then it all goes south. So we learn in these first three chapters of Scripture, of the whole of Scripture, we learn two things. We learn that God created a good world and humankind is a part of that good world. We learn that humankind was created in God's image And we learn about the fall. We learn that we have turned our back on God and walked away. Heidi Husted, who some of you know, who was my college pastor, used to say that the Bible is about three things. God made a good world. We messed it and ourselves up. And God has been about the business of putting the world and us back together again. Mary tells me that wasn't original to Heidi, but I can't remember who Mary said that she got that from. But if those are the three themes of all of scripture, two of those themes are revealed in the very, very beginning. And the truth of those two things, that we are created in the image of God and that we are fallen, is true of all of us. It's a universal truth. And we experience the fall in our lives. We see it all around us. We we are aware that human beings have a capacity for amazing, selfless giving. We have seen I- examples of people living in really remarkable ways that really does show the image of God implanted on people. And we also have examples in history of just really unspeakable evil, really amazing people, not unlike ourselves, who take pleasure in, in the suffering and pain of others. It's really quite remarkable the capacity for human evil. We see it. We see it all around us in big and small ways. But my topic is original sin, so I have to focus on the dark side. A friend of mine once said to me, I never believed in original sin until I had a (laughs) two-year-old. 
Now, I don't know that she really meant that to be a funny statement, but it is a funny statement. But for those of us who've ever spent any time around preschoolers, you really do see that that sense of self is hardwired. Little kids, before about the age of three, they don't have any capacity to adjust their behavior and to behave in a socially acceptable way. That just is not there at all. What you get from a two-year-old is mine. You know, you have the children push to the front of the line. They grab a toy if that's what they want. The, that sense of self, that sense of me first, is so ingrained in little children. I teach Sunday school with the preschoolers, and every Sunday we have a snack downstairs, and every Sunday we wash our hands before we have a snack. And inevitably, every week, the, whoever the adult is that's helping the children wash hands, I will wash hands, you know. There's pushing, there's people trying to make their way to the front of the line. You hear the adults saying, now, Billy, it's Sarah's turn. You're going to have to wait in line behind Sarah. This happens every week. And those of you who've ever spent any time around preschoolers, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have to teach children how to share. You have to teach children how to wait in line. You have to teach children to take turns. That is not what comes naturally. The... The attitude of two-year-olds is really deeply ingrained. One conversation that I, I submit to you has never happened with a two- or a three-year-old. No parent or teacher has ever said to a young child, you know, honey, you really need to look out for your own interests a little bit more. You know, you, you really shouldn't always let someone else go first. You, you need to, you know, set some boundaries and be sure that your needs are taken care of. That conversation has never happened with a three-year-old because that sense of self is very deeply ingrained. By the time we're about four and ongoing, we learn to control our behavior, we learn what is socially acceptable, we learn to stand in line, but that sense of self, I think, is still in us. We experience it in many ways. I think we see it, we see it, well, one of the places I see it is when I drive. I am, you know, when two lanes merge together, I sort of learned the zipper technique. You know, the two lanes come together, and then you get to a point where there's one car from this side and one car from that side, and one car from this side and one car from... You take turns. And yet, there's always those who hug the bumper of the person in front of them. They're not going to let somebody get in front of them. They're just like young Billy who wants to push to the front of the line. That's us. We have learned to adjust our behavior at time, but that two-year-old's never far away. We, we do tend to look out for our own interests. When I think about this tendency for us to prioritize our own needs, I, I find that it brings new meaning to Jesus' call to love our neighbor as, I love, as we love ourselves. You know, when I think about that call, and then I begin to honestly take inventory of the ways that I care for my own needs, in the specific and tangible ways that I care for my own needs, whether it be in providing healthy food for myself, whether it be in retirement savings, whether it be in safety in my home, or protecting my own time, are you kidding? Love your neighbor as you love yourself? I mean, I fall so miserably short on so many levels. I can't, I can't even count the number of ways that I am so far from 
prioritizing the needs of others in the same way that I prioritize the needs of myself. And the fall is also seen in creation. We live not only as fallen people, but we live in a fallen world. I, I think about this sometimes when I'm putting in my contact lenses in the morning. You know, God created us with eyes to see, to appreciate the beautiful colors that you're all wearing this morning, to enjoy creation, and yet I have lousy eyesight. So I have to every morning, you know, put a little tiny film over my eyes so I can see you. I have to engage in this artificial correction so that I can enjoy good vision. That's not a part of God's creation. That's not a part of God's intent. All of those kinds of things are a part of the fallen world that we live in. Phil knows this, that I talk about the fall when I'm dusting. Now, I maintain that dust is a part of the fallen world. It's a part of the decay that takes place. Now, I have to say, it is one thing to have to clean a room that people have messed up. You know, when people track, to have to vacuum the floor, when people have, you know, tracked dirt in from outside or to have to wipe the counter because people have spilled sticky things on the counter. I mean, you sort of expect to have to clean up messes. But when you have dusted the guest room and then you close the door and nobody goes in there, and then two months later when you have a guest, that room has gotten dirty all by itself. Now, I say, this fallen world, death, decay, disease, dust, it is all a part of the fallen world. I tell Phil, when God creates a new heaven and a new earth, we're not going to have any dust. The, uh, the fall, for Christians, the fall is important. Understanding original sin, understanding the fallen nature of all of us matters because it's what causes us to need Jesus. If we could just learn to behave better, if we could just learn to adjust ourselves so that we would be more generous with others, so that we would be more self-giving, then we, we, would just, we could just behave our way out of our predicament. But that really isn't true. Behavior gets better, to be sure. I mean, we do, hopefully, most of us do learn to not always push in line. Some of us, you know, are better at that than others. But for the most part, we do learn to adjust our behavior. And to be sure, the behavior of some is worse than the behavior of others. But, in, but actually, our sinful nature remains. Whether we learn to adjust our behavior or not, we are fallen people. And because of that, we need a savior. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15:22, Paul says, For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. So we have this doctrine that the fall, sin, is true for all of us. It comes through this story. And we also know that life is provided for us in Jesus Christ. So what's the takeaway message? What is it that we learn from the doctrine of original sin? How does it inform our interactions with each other? How does it inform our interactions with people who believe differently than we do? You know that we're in this series on sort of the interfaith dialogue and talking about some of our, our um, doctrines and how do we approach these doctrines in a way that has something helpful to say 
about our interfaith dialogue? Well, I have to say I, it hasn't been easy to figure that out for me. But I want to offer up a couple of thoughts on that, on what it is that we can glean from the, the awareness that we are fallen. One of the things that I think should, we should bring to the dialogue is a certain level of humility. The world and our friends and neighbors often have a very negative view of Christians. And frankly, that is sometimes for good reason. Because what the media portrays of Christians is often very negative. What, what my friends and colleagues often hear is about the dark side, the ways that Christians are sometimes so sure that we are right, and yet behave in ways that seem terribly misguided. We see stories on the news of uh, Christians burning the Quran, going out of their way to be overtly hostile towards the, the sacred book of another religion. And people are disgusted by that. And you know what? Probably most of us in this room are also disgusted by it. We see Christians... Uh, so-called protesting at military funerals, spewing hatred speech in a way that's just designed to be hurtful, and yet they're guided by some conviction that somehow this is what God would have them do. Most of us see that kind of thing, and again, we're disgusted, just as our friends and neighbors are. I think one of the things that we learn from the concept of original sin is that we all have the capacity for being misguided, for being very sure of our convictions, and yet being very wrong. We need to be forgiven, and we need to acknowledge the fact that our motives are sometimes really influenced by our own, our own selfish desires, and we sometimes can't even tease that out. And we can, we, can be, um, we can be very wrong at times. And I think we need to approach our dialogue with a certain level of humility, <clears throat> recognizing that there are many dark chapters in the church's history, and some of them are being written right now. And I think we need to acknowledge that and, and admit that we have a lot to be forgiven for. We also have a lot to, to feel good about. Um, the, the church has many bright chapters as well. I think about the Red Cross, for example, the most well-known and well-respected relief organization in the world, started by a Christian. So it's not all dark history. But some of it is, and I think we need to recognize with a, with a level of humility that we have gotten it wrong a lot of the time, and I think we need to acknowledge that and be ready to be forgiven for it. The second thing that I think we can glean from this story is that we're sort of all in this together, that all of us, all of us, are created in the image of God, and all of us are fallen. Those two truths are true of every human being. They are true of the person you're sitting next to this morning. They are true of the people sitting on death row at San Quentin this morning. They are true of the, the heroes of our faith. We are all created with the image of God in us, and we are all fallen. When, I think, when we think about that, at least as I've been thinking about that truth over these last few weeks, it, it has helped me to step away from the us and them dichotomy that is often so present. There really is just us. When I see someone behaving badly, I think, you know what? That person's fallen, just like me. 
And when I see somebody behaving in a really remarkable way, I think, there it is. There's the image of God on that person. I think that recognizing that both things are true of all of us helps us to have a sense of appreciation that we are all in this together and that we are all in need of God's grace. Our only hope, the only hope for any of us, is the grace of God, which we as Christians believe is expressed in the person of Jesus Christ. So I think that's really the message here, that we are all created in the image of God and that we are all in need of forgiveness. Amen.